Welcome to episode 366 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Do you help entrepreneurs become authors? Are you an entrepreneur who wants to be an author? I'm building a biz book publishing hub designed to assist entrepreneurs in navigating the complexities of writing, editing, and publishing their books. If your services are a match for business authors, or if you're looking for these services to publish your own business book, email me at Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com and I'll share next steps. Why am I setting this free service up? I work with business authors on the launch of their books. The ideal client for my book launch services is an entrepreneur whose manuscript is ready to go to the editor. My goal in setting up a biz book publishing hub is to simplify the process for aspiring authors, connecting them with the necessary tools and resources to help them reach this milestone. I help entrepreneurs build 150-person book launch teams with the goal of receiving 50-plus Amazon reviews. The process wakes up and engages their network, helping them discover likely prospects and referral partners and leading to unexpected opportunities. The focus is on getting 50-plus Amazon reviews because those are social proof on the book's sales page and could be repurposed in marketing materials. If they choose their categories well, a byproduct of this effort is that the author's book reaches number one bestseller in at least one category. I've self-published three books that have each received over 200 Amazon reviews and collectively reached number one bestseller in 29 categories across the US, UK, Canada, and Australia. If you provide a service to help entrepreneurs become authors, or you're looking for these services to publish your own business book, email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com, and I'll be sure to share the next steps. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Awesome. Hey, welcome back. I've got another great guest for you. Uh, as you see in the description of this, you know, he reached out to respond to one of my emails and that's all it takes. Sometimes, you know, just hitting reply, you get a lot of information from a lot of amazing people. Every single one of those people would love to hear from you. So take the time like Richard did and you never know what might happen. So without any further delay, here is the official introduction. Today's guest believes that success isn't solely about reaching an end game. It's about making progress and our goals while falling in love with the process. As the author of best-selling books like The Four-Year Career, his principles have transformed the lives of countless individuals. His insights were so impactful that he graced the cover of Success Magazine, solidifying his status as a thought leader. His impact extends, extends to the world stage, 
where he has spoken alongside luminaries like Tony Robbins, Sir Richard Branson, Les Brown, and John Maxwell. His work has touched lives globally, igniting fires of accomplishment in individuals and organizations. He's a 45-year veteran of the network marketing profession and an ontological coach best known for his authenticity and his viral video series, Super MLM Man. Please join me in welcoming Richard Bliss Brook. Welcome, Richard. Hey, thank you, Robbie. It's an honor to be here. Richard, you are joining us from the wonderful islands of Hawaii. I'm so thrilled that you're able to do that, but it's a power of technology. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, I suppose I define leadership, Robbie, in uh, simple, practical terms, which is a leader has a vision that would be a clear picture in his or her mind of a place that the leader is going, not wants to go, but is going. And that place would be, you know, any accomplishment, any journey, any manifestation of the vision. And the vision has lots of pay value for people to go along the journey with the leader. So there's a lot of what's in it for the followers. And I think what defines a leader is they have that vision and they have the courage to pursue the vision, whether people follow or not, whether any individual people follow or not. And they have the ability to communicate the value of the journey to the followers so that people want to go, so people have the courage. And kind of what defines that relationship is the leader has the clarity of vision and has the courage that the followers don't necessarily have so that the followers can go on a journey that they wouldn't necessarily go on their own. They don't have the vision. They don't have the courage. Kind of then defines them as a follower. The leader has the vision, has the courage, defines them as a leader. The two don't exist without each other. And I suppose the first time I um, really got clear that I might have that quality is when I was introduced to the technology and the the art of goal setting, uh, like really intentional goal setting, which I, you know, that was kind of late for me in life in my 20s before I ever heard of anything called goal setting. And I was coached to dream big, think of some big things I wanted to do in my life and actually believe in my ability to do them. And so I set out on the journey to accomplish some big things. And those big things required lots of people to go with me. And I found myself in the role of selling people on the journey, which required a very clear articulation of the vision and the pay value, like what's in it for you if if you come with me. And to some degree, that worked. So I guess I did. I found myself leading. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's this idea that leadership is about vision, communication, 
and being clear about the value. So it's like, if you're excited about something and you go and tell a whole bunch of people and not a single person wants to join you on that journey, then you're not being a very effective leader. Even right. if you stubbornly go for it yourself, you're not getting the followers. The followers, are the, that's the movement behind you uh, that creates some energy behind that, this vision and helps create some, um, bring it to life. But the people joining that journey need to understand that like, what's, what's in it for me? Uh, and you use the term pay value. So I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. It's like, what, what, what helps them realize, oh, I, this is helpful for me. I'm not just helping someone else do something. I'm helping me and everyone else. And, um, you know, you, you have an interesting journey. I, I got a chance to peek around your, uh, your website, you beautiful job explaining kind of who you are and how you've come to be. Uh, and I'm always curious when people talk about their you know, earliest leadership, I'm like, I'm always curious about who they were before that moment in your late twenties, when you started to really understand goal setting. I'm, I'm curious what Richard, what you were like as a kid, you know, on the playground, were you the one organizing friends? Were you off to the side reading a book? Did you join after school activities? Did you run for office? Did your teachers notice some potential in you? Did you always raise your hand? Like what kind of kid did you show up as when you were, were growing up? It'd be just the opposite of if you look at my journey as an adult, then you look at my childhood, there's no connection between my childhood and my journey as an adult. I was in I was a shy, um, introverted, not a lot of confidence um, kid. Um, my teachers would have not noted anything noteworthy about me other than I wasn't in class as much as I should have been. And I was causing more trouble than I should have caused and getting, you know, not very good grades. But I was not a notable student. I was not one to organize friends not one to ask girls on dates. I, I just pretty much held back as a kid. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's a testimony to, we are not necessarily our past. I mean, a lot of us are, a lot of us are just a continuation of who we were sort of branded as, uh, created as, as kids. But one of the things that I discovered in my journey is that we can change and we can change radically and we can change our beliefs. We can change our identity. We can change our habits, change our skills, change our belief systems. We can change it all. And I was very fortunate to get connected with a group of people that were all about change and all about, you know, swinging for the fences and accomplishing big things and realizing that in order to do that, they had to change the patterns that were established oftentimes in their childhood. And they had to become the kind of people that could accomplish great things. And that's not necessarily what you and I were designed as, as kids. You know, most kids, you know, they may look like they're gregarious and outgoing and confident, but oftentimes that's just compensating for, you know, insecurities and so I just was very fortunate to get connected in my early 20s. Took me a few years to figure it out and create some success in that system. But you know, I think it, you know, it's all about like whatever you and I want to do in life, we got to find a group of people that are doing it, that have done it, that are willing to coach us to do it. Uh, we got to find a movement. We got to find that river that's going where we want to go 
and jump in it and absorb those belief systems and then absorb those skills and attitudes and aptitudes. And, and then we can become a product of it if we do the work. Richard, where did you grow up? I grew up in a farming community, ranching farming community on a, on a big cattle ranch slash row crop farm in central California, the San Joaquin Valley, in the foothills below Yosemite. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you probably didn't see the kind of people you're talking about now, like in your media area. I mean, you had hardworking, uh, industrious, local farmers, ranchers, you know, but your worldview was limited in that, you know, age 10, what you thought you could be. In fact, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up when you were like 12 or 13 years old? Did you have a sense of the path ahead of you? Was college even part of the plan? Nope. I had no sense at all about what I was going to do, who I was going to be. I think as a sophomore in high school, I got the idea, oh, maybe I want to be a forest ranger because that would allow me to stay outdoors and stay in nature and not necessarily deal with people. And, you know, my idea of a forest ranger is you get your own truck and you drive around in the truck or whatever you do. And so I actually on my own went and met a friend and I, um, and the two of us, we went and met with a forest ranger and said, what does it take to become a forest ranger? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, well, you got to go to Humboldt State College, which is, you know, Northern California. And there's 3,000 applicants a year. And they take, he either said 30 or 300, whatever he said. I immediately decided, well, I'm not going to be one of those because I have a 1.9 GPA. And so that idea vanished. And... Yeah, my parents were smart people. They were well-educated, but they had their own deals going on as adults. And they were not, um, they weren't really uh, grooming me. And I was not groomable. So I'm not putting it on them. I was not coachable. I was not interested in anything my parents had to say. And so they probably just gave up on me early. And I had no clue what I was going to do. And so I ended up working in a chicken factory poultry processing plant, you know, where the live chickens come in and they, they end up going out in the yellow tray, a place called Foster Farms in Central California, the largest single poultry processing plant in the world. And I actually fell in love with it. And I, that was the first place I actually did any goal setting. Not, they didn't teach me. I just sort of naturally saw the landscape of the chicken plant. And I saw the hierarchy of management and you know, the higher up you went, the nicer your office was. And if you ran the chicken plant, you actually, your office was out of the concrete wet plant and in an office with carpet. And so I just decided, well, I'm going to stay here as long as I need to stay here until I can run the chicken plant. And that was my ambition for four years, and I loved it. I mean, it's not a bad place in that sense that you you saw movement potential, right? You saw, you yeah. didn't feel like you were stuck where you started. You saw the possibility of, of working hard and, and being recognized and moving up. There was a yeah. reward for working hard and, and making that effort. So it maybe ignited something in you that you hadn't seen before. Like when you were, when you were in high school, there wasn't really a clear 
ladder of success in front of you. And here, at least there was something, right? Like you, you had potential. So four years later, how high up did you make it? Well, I, I had a, I think I had a crew of about 200 people working for me, uh, but I was still, my office was still in the plant, you know, in the yeah. concrete floor. And then, you know, what, what, this just happens, right? So this is a lesson for all of us, no matter what your vision is, no matter what your goal is, the reason I shifted many years ago, defining success to accomplishing the goal, to focusing on the journey and falling in love with the process is if you define success as accomplishing the end game, like getting what you want, whether it's a certain amount of money or living in a certain home or marrying a certain person, or if you define it that specifically, you set yourself up for a lot of frustration and disappointment because the world is a big place and there's a lot going on in the world that your particular vision and goal don't necessarily have anything to do with. So I had this goal of I'm going to run the chicken plant and I worked hard and I worked my way up and I was upwardly mobile and I had the ability to run that plant, you know, maybe 10, 15 years later, keep learning and keep being coached. But I didn't have any control over the fact that the owner of the chicken plant hired a guy to run the chicken plant who had a master's degree in poultry husbandry, which I, I can't even imagine how such a degree exists, number one. And number two, how would somebody in school raise their hand and say, I'm, I want a master's degree in poultry husbandry, which is basically raising chickens. But that's who became the boss of the chicken plant. His name was Earl Tooker. And because he was so steeped in education, he created a company-wide policy that you couldn't advance any further than I already was without a four-year college degree. He just created a policy. And I didn't realize it at the time. I've, in hindsight, studied that event over and over again, but I didn't realize at the time, it doesn't matter how motivated I was or how hard I worked or how upwardly mobile I was or how... If, if I knew anything about goal setting and manifestation and, you know, I could sit and like meditate and hum and, mm, you know, none of that's going to change Earl Tooker's policy. And the fact that my career at the chicken plant was over because I didn't have that degree and I wasn't going to get it. And because of that, I became open to somebody saying, Hey, why don't you look over here at business? And you know, if, so, if you'd asked me a week before, and actually somebody did ask me a week before that policy, hey, what do you think about sales and business? And I said, never. It's not me. I don't want anything to do with sales. I don't want to be, I don't want to sell people things. I don't want to take their money. I don't want to be that person, right? That image of a salesperson, a promoter, a business. I, that's just not me. But Earl Tooker changed all that. Yeah, because suddenly you had an enforced ceiling limit, right? Like you couldn't, there was no way to work around that that limit because it was a four-year degree that you weren't going to be getting and uh, you didn't see any any future in that company. And it's a little bit like when people get laid off in the middle of, you know, 2008 or 99 or when <laughs> you name the economic downturn, uh, that suddenly they they take on a new what felt like a riskier proposition before I would never see myself doing that kind of uh, adventure. 
uh, suddenly becomes possible. And so you turn to sales, which at that time you had, you didn't have sales at, at all in your background or in your interests. Um, what was the first thing you were selling? What was the product or, or service? It was a gasoline additive, a product you put in your gas tank that gives you better gas mileage. And I didn't realize it at the time, but another huge lesson I was immersed in at that moment, and only through reflection did I learn the lesson. But, you know, the guy who actually introduced me to this opportunity, he'd been calling me for weeks and weeks and weeks and telling me, hey, I want you to look at this, come and do this with me, we can make a lot of money. And um, I just told him flat out no. And he was talking about making about five times as much money as I was already making. And so you would think that, you know, I, I worked like crazy hours and did all kinds of stuff just to maybe get an extra $100 a month raise. Now, this was in the late 70s. I made $1,200 a month. And I would have done just about anything to get a $100 a month raise, right? And this guy's saying, hey, you know, come to this meeting and come and join me. And we're going to make $5,000 a month, which is, you know, that was like gangster money for me back then. And I said no, and I meant it. And then through just a happenstance process of, okay, policy changed at the chicken plant. And I just happened to go by this guy's house. And he's celebrating a commission check that he earned in three weeks of working maybe, you know, two or three hours a day. And it was more than I earned working 60 hours a week at the chicken plant. And so it's just that kind of magical mix of perspective that I said, all right, show me, right? And he showed me, not the product. I mean, he showed me the product, but I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not interested in selling. But he showed me the money. And he kept showing me the money in a way that it kind of like got absorbed in my psyche to the, to the point where I started to have a conversation with myself. Well, if I could actually earn that much money, and here's the lesson in hindsight, and it's a leadership and followership lesson that we say no to things all the time, and people say no to us all the time, and they mean it. And we think as a leader, when somebody says, no, I'm not interested, I don't want to go with you, we tend to think, okay, that's the truth. That's the end of it. They said, no, they're not interested. And conversely, we tend to think when we see something and we say no, we mean it. And that's the end of it. And what I've learned is that we will say yes to things we adamantly said no to. And people will say yes to us who adamantly said no to us. When the value proposition changes. And here's an analogy that I give, you know, people that I coach. If I have a bunch of people on a Zoom, so, okay, you, have, you got a bunch of people watching this, right? So, all right, folks, when this is over and, you know, uh, Robbie signs off and the podcast is over, here's what I want you to do. I want you to strip down naked. And I want you to run up and down your street 
yelling at the top of your lungs, I love Robbie Samuels. I love Robbie Samuels. But you have to do it bone naked, nothing on, and you have to do it in the middle of the day. And you have to do it right after the podcast is over. Raise your hand if you're up for that. I don't I'm not, I'm not seeing any takers. Yeah, if you got a thousand people, you know, just well, if you got a thousand people, I promise there'll be ten that'll raise their hand. Why? I don't know. It sounds like fun, right? It's crazy. Yeah. But the reality is everybody's gonna say no and they're gonna mean it. All right, well, let me change the value proposition. I give you five thousand dollars cash if you do it. Now, out of a thousand people, Robbie, you probably have some single moms who are on the bubble. Right? They five thousand dollars to change their life, change everything. So the way they think about it is they sort of encapsulate and they rationalize and they say, "Huh, it'll only take me two minutes to run up and down my block. With five thousand dollars, I could move. I don't know any of these people anyway." right? All of a sudden, it becomes worth it. And of course, out of a thousand people, I might only get 20 or 30 for five grand. So fine, 50 grand. Now, how many of you are in? Right? A lot more hands go up because 50 grand changes the perspective. But I'm not going to get everybody for 50 grand. So, okay, 500. Five million. I got almost everybody, but I don't have everybody. Now, I got some holdouts. They, they would, you know, they'll never let anybody in public see their naked body. They don't even let their spouse see their naked body, right? They don't even look at their own naked body. So here's how I get everybody. The holdouts who are not financially motivated at all. Do you know anyone who's terminal? Holdouts. Do you know anyone who's terminal? Probably do. Or did you know anybody who's, who was terminal? And here's the value proposition. If you streak, the universe will save them. Pretty much everyone's going to say yes at that point. Mountains will be moved. Yeah. And so it's it really is all about value proposition, which changes the game some. As a leader, now you can look at the people who say no, and you can ask yourself, okay, sounds like my value proposition was not strong enough, clear enough. And, you know, you can't make promises you can't keep. I'm not, I'm not talking about doing that. I'm talking about, you know, like revisiting your own leadership communication game and saying, okay, what did I miss? Where could I have uh, cast the vision with more clarity? Where could I have customized it to make it more fit their values so mm-hmm. that the game scene's not about like making money? You know, so, something as simple as, okay, you know, maybe we're going to do business and we're going to make money. Well, okay, well, maybe you add a foundation and a charity and maybe we start to do some some good work along with the business. And maybe we start to build some homes or build some churches or change people's minds about a political issue, right? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, if we're going to do that and make money, I'm down for that. 
When you were figuring out for yourself that you were going to move out of your comfort zone uh, into the zone of proximal development where you were going to learn these new skill sets around sales and money was money was the motivating factor for you. How quickly did you realize you had the aptitude to sell? Like, was it hard getting started? Yes, because my model of selling was telling. And actually, if you look at the model of sales, this is the model for almost all salespeople, which is, so if I was selling you something, it would sound like this, Robbie, you should buy this. You should use this. The word should is operative there. So it's an arrogant proposition. I know better than you know. And you should do what I tell you to do. This is how you should spend your time. This is how you should spend your money. These are what your values should be. And in order to pull that off, you basically have to be a bully. And you have to find customers who, you know, they they don't have a strong aptitude for conflict. And they're going to buy as opposed to be in conflict with you as a salesperson. And so that was my first approach to selling was just being a really good bully, right? Being more articulate, louder, talk faster, more convincing, no more of the facts, make people wrong. I'm right, you're wrong, buy my product. And I was actually pretty good at that. Um, What shifted? When did you realize that that wasn't the way you wanted to move forward? I listened to a 30-minute audio tape called um, the, new, uh, the New Way of Selling from the Wilson Learning Institute. And this was, gosh, 40 years ago. And it just changed everything for me. And it was you know, very simple stuff. They were teaching business to business. They were teaching basically the example they used was a copy copier salesman going in and talking to a buyer for copying machines was the example they were using. But the, the, the paradigm was instead of telling the prospect what you think they should do because you know better and because you're trying to make a buck and make commission, uh, how about you start the conversation with asking the prospect what they want, what they need, what their problems are, what's important to them. How about you ask them who they are as a human being? And how about you listen and really absorb who the other person is on the other side of the table? And then maybe even take some time to go assess, you know, who is Robbie Samuels and what's he up to in life and what's his personal life about and how might I be of service to him? And then I come back or maybe I do it in the same time, but Maybe I come back and I say, hey, Robbie, here's how I see my opportunity, my product serving you. And if it doesn't actually fit and serve you, right, uh, then we're just friends. We're not, we're not in business together because not everybody needs what you're selling. So as you were developing this, it sounds like you were getting outside, you know, searching for outside resources, finding, you know, finding this 30 minute recording, which, you know, was, was revolutionary, right? At the time for you to think differently like that. 
and you start getting more comfortable. I mean, you've built a, a legacy career in this field of MLM. How did that part happen? Like, how did it go from you just taking on like, oh, I'm going to sell this thing and I'm going to do this other thing. When did it switch from that into, into a career, into, a, into like a bigger part of, of how you were sort of positioning yourself in the world? Well, there, was, there were three things that, I, that we were selling. One was a product. It was a gasoline additive, right? Put it in a gas tank, get better gas mileage. Almost everybody that I was in business with was focused on that. It's all about the gas additive, right? And I loved the product. In fact, 45 years later, even though that company that I was part of uh, after I think about 15 years went out of business, I still use that product today in everything I own that burns gasoline. It's a really good product. I really believed in it. But in terms of what I was doing as a professional, that product had, you know, just a tiny bit to do with what I was doing as a professional. The other thing we were selling was an income opportunity, an opportunity to, you know, the unique thing about network marketing is, yes, you can make some money, but you can make money doing a million things, right? There's, there's nothing unique about multi-level marketing or network marketing as an income opportunity to make $500 or $1,000 a month. I mean, it's actually a lot simpler. Go drive Uber or something if you want to make an extra $1,000 a month. The unique financial proposition in network marketing is if you pick the right product and the right company, which is an art in itself, and almost everybody doesn't even know that's important, and they just pick whatever happens to be in front of them when they get excited, and they find out, oops, five years later, I picked the wrong company. There is a whole art to what company you pick because the real economic opportunity is you can build something once and get paid forever. I mean, literally, I have clients. I'm, I, all I do now is coach business owners of all kinds of businesses and, and a lot of network marketers. And I have clients now that are third-generation network marketers, meaning their grandparents built the network marketing business. They died. Their parents inherited the income and the team. They died. And now it's the grandkids. And these are businesses that are 60, 70 years old, and they're still growing. They're billion-dollar businesses. They're going to be here 100 years from now. So it's going to be the great-grandkids and the great-great-grandkids. You get paid forever, which makes the value proposition totally different. There's a huge difference between something where you can make $1,000 a month and something where you can make $1,000 a month for four, five, six, seven years. And then if you want to, or if something happens and you have to, and you can't keep building the business, you get paid forever. What was the service that you ended up selling if it wasn't the gas additive? A dental products. Dental products. Yeah, same thing. They're great products. I still use them today. I mean, I actually own the company today, but uh, they're fantastic products, but it's a small piece of what we were selling, right? And then the second piece was this economic opportunity where you can build something once and get paid forever. But that you asked, I'm answering your question about what made the difference, what, what actually yeah. caused me to be successful. It wasn't those two things. It was the third thing which is 
I was fortunate to be involved with people and not all network marketing companies and certainly not all businesses have these kind of people in them. But I was very fortunate to be involved with people that were more interested in changing the human being than how much money anybody made or how much product they sold or the, what the product did. And it was the transformational part of the journey. Who I became in order to, to achieve the goals I had became far more profound. And how much money I made or the gas mileage difference in my car, right? Or how white my teeth were because of the dental brushes, right? That's like totally insignificant. Who I became in the journey. Wow. Now that's something we're selling. So my secret sauce was if I met you, Robbie, and, you know, where everybody else is trying to sell you a product. Yeah, I would listen to you and I'd see if there's an opportunity for you to use the product. And yes, I would listen to your financial situation and I'd position the finances as to see if there's a fit. But that was a small part of who I was for you. Who I was for you is who is Robbie Samuels and what what does he want to do with his life? What's the journey he wants to be on? Who does he want to become? And I became your partner, your ally, your coach, if you would allow me, in that journey. And oftentimes, that journey led us away from selling the product or making the money because I I became committed to you and what you wanted in life. And that relationship that I developed with people became you know, my identity, my trademark, my reputation, my credibility, and I think led to more of my success than anything. Mm. I mean, that investment in the people that I assume that these are the people that are signing on to be part of your team, right? Yeah, but you know, a lot of them didn't, a lot of them didn't too. I just became an advocate for people's journey, whether, whether they paid me or not. And of course, you know, I, paid more attention to people that paid me or were on my team. But who I've been for the last 40 years is a champion for people's dreams, for their journey, for who they want to become. And, and also a champion for them recognizing they are not their past. They're not stuck in who they believe they were as kids and those limiting beliefs. We can shatter that. There's a process to it. It's not accidental. It can happen and take some work, but I'm not, you wouldn't even recognize me from 20 years old. Yeah. I'm trying to actually draw a bridge between these two. And it is really hard to do because you're the kind of somewhat apathetic kid who isn't coachable, doesn't want to listen to people, sees limitations everywhere. And then, you know, to who you are today so I'm curious. So you're in your twenties, maybe when you start to have these revelatory uh, moments, who was coaching you through that? I mean, or was it self taught? Were you taking in information from all these CDs and, and, you know, all, all these lessons from these amazing people who were sharing insights or like, how did that, that learning that shifting inside you start and get sustained? 
Well, the the people that I was associated with in the network marketing company, the leadership, mm. the um, you call them the sales leaders, the owners of the company, you know, they were, of course, about selling product because that's where the revenue came from. And they were, of course, about everybody making money because that's like the low hanging fruit of what motivated people. But their higher purpose in life and who they were for me were these coaches, these inspirational leaders that taught me things that go way beyond selling and making money. And so I studied them and availed myself to them. And then, of course, they introduced me to people that they studied, people like Napoleon Hill and Wallace Waddles and um, yeah. you know, W. Clement Stone and Earl Nightingale and you know, these are, these are all people that are gone now, but, um, these are, these are success leaders, success thought leaders, um, uh, from the 20th century that, you know, I studied, you know, there's, you know, like, um, Earl Nightingale's The Strangest Secret is about a 45 minute audio tape that in my twenties, I listened to it thousands of times. Paul J. Meyer, a little audio tape called The Power of Goal Setting. I listened to it thousands of times. And so, you know, those people became my mentors. One, one of the awesome things about, you know, change and success and, you know, anybody can go on YouTube. And now back then, 40 years ago, there was, you know, maybe five people that you could go find and study that taught this kind of stuff. Now there's 50,000. And... So there's no limit to the amount of success coaching that anybody can avail themselves to. And almost all of it's free. Yeah, I think the amazing part is how you shifted from not being open to learning to becoming a sponge uh, that was seeking out this information. And you started to see it work for you. And then you started to share it with others. And, and that's, I mean, I, I have to say, I haven't known a lot of people talk about MLM the way you just described network marketing um, to have that kind of coaching and support and that being beyond just the dollar that you're going to make. I mean, that sounds like an incredible organization to be a part of and the people who you're touching in their lives and they're touching your life. That's, that's a great, I'm glad you landed there, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and that you didn't land with people. I, I just did an interview recently where people were talking about bad bosses. <laughs> um, if you'd had that kind of, you know, everything's about the dollar and the bottom line experience, you you may not have stayed in it. I mean, you might have just fallen out of that, not wanted to stay in it. But you, you're here as a lifelong veteran of that work because it wasn't about the sale. It was about the the relationships that you were developing and the way you saw people. I am curious though, Richard, what is, you talked about gas additives and you talked about some dental products. What's the strangest thing you've ever sold? Odd, strange, I don't know what word to use. Unique? Uh, well, I haven't sold a lot of things because I, I haven't moved around a lot. So I, I sold that gas additive and then I sold those dental products uh, probably, I guess I, if I thought about it, I might come up with a different answer. But uh, the gasoline additive company had this bright idea that they needed to appeal to women. And so they launched a skincare line 
alongside the gasoline additive. Huh. And this was pre-internet, right? So everything we were doing was face-to-face physical. And so if I was presenting this company and this opportunity, we did that a lot in hotel rooms and meeting rooms, right? And so we had product displays. Now you have a website, right? But um, so up in front of the room was a product display of all the gasoline additives, gasoline, diesel, fuel oil additives. And then on the left-hand side was um, the skincare line, which was called Natasha, which was a Russian name. And it was in very fancy glass bottles. And I remember the first person that was educating me on this line when they introduced it, um, they were talking about um, that the technology of the skincare line was that what made it work was it had human placenta extract in it. And I just remember listening to that and trying to imagine that I would tell a woman Try this product because it has human placenta extract. <laughs> so I stayed focused on the fuel additive. Very different audiences. Very different. You know, it, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, you you you're really trying to split test there. I yeah. as I was asking that question, I started thinking back because I've been selling things since I was a kid, and I had a I had a business teacher in high school who knew I was very entrepreneurial. I has already had a couple of side hustles, and he got a line on socks. I don't know how, but I was selling my peers in my classes socks. <laughs> they didn't last they very long. <laughs> why were they buying them? <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, they didn't last very long. But I do remember he said, I have this thing I can, <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll try that. Um, so how do you stay in touch with the people that are in your life? Do you have, do you have a, a CRM? Do you just think of people and reach out to them? Do you host events and parties? Like what's your method of, of staying in touch with the, your larger network? Well, I have a, a pretty large email list and I write a blog and I do a podcast. And so that's kind of how the big group stays connected to me. Of course I'm on social media, but I'm not a social media fan. And I'm not very prolific at it. Um, I think social media is on the backside of being over. Might take another 10 years, but it's going to be replaced by something. Hopefully more user-friendly and better for our self-esteem and better for our community and our collaboration as a society. On a more intimate level, how do I stay in touch with people? I call them. I text them. I suppose there are some that I Facebook message, but I prefer texting and calling people. And, um, you know, it's one of the challenges I found of being in the people business and being in the big vision people business is uh, you can quickly develop a network that's so large that it is a challenge to stay connected to people you want to stay connected to. But I just wrote a blog, uh, published it yesterday, about what I call Bill's Law, maybe is a better answer to your question. In uh, 
first couple of years, one of the books I read that was recommended to me by my mentors was a book called How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success Through Selling by Frank Betcher. Somebody probably nobody's ever heard of, probably never ever heard of the book. I don't know why they recommended it, but I read it three or four times and I only remember one thing from the book. And, you know, it was about um, staying in touch. And it was also about when you find somebody that is successful, when you meet somebody that is on the journey that you might want to be on, even if they're not connected to you in any way, shape, or form, have the courage to reach out to them and ask them for advice, ask them to tell you their story, ask them to lunch, ask them to coffee. And this was kind of the message of Frank Betcher's book is take a millionaire to lunch kind of thing. And so I developed that habit. And all oh, about 30 years ago, I met a guy named Bill Morrow. And so I call it Bill's Law. This is what I wrote the blog about. And Bill's very successful guy. He's passed on now. But when I met him, he owned 26 Red Robin restaurants. I think they're worth about 10 million a piece. And he had a whole bunch of other stuff, but that was kind of his core business. He started by buying a half of a Howard Johnson's restaurant when he was in college. And he grew that to be the largest Howard Johnson's franchise owner in the world. Then he saw the trend of Howard Johnson's not going anywhere, Red Robin going somewhere. He sold all of his Howard Johnson's, invested everything in Red Robin's, and built them up to 26. And when I met him, he'd actually sold all of those. And um, he owned a very prestigious golf course called the Quarry in La Quinta, California. And I'm an avid golfer, so that's how he and I met. So anyway, I went over to Bill's house, and I asked him for the time. I said, hey, I want to kind of interview you. I want to hear your story. And so I just, first question was, what's your number one rule, Bill? What's the number one thing you would tell me for being successful? And he didn't even hesitate. He just said, return everybody's phone call. And, you know, that kind of hit me as, like, huh? And of course, Bill built his business, you know, pre-internet, pre-everything that we have to deal with. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things I have to deal with, which I'm sure you do too, is, you know, all these people on LinkedIn that send us these ridiculous emails because they can scrape our email off of LinkedIn that say, you know, oh, I'm really good at this and I can do this for your company. And so here's my link to schedule a 15-minute call with me. You know, I must get like 50 of those a day. And I'd like to spend the rest of my career just coaching those people on, that is the worst outreach ever. <laughs> and anyway, so I, I want, you know, I don't want to tell Bill, hello, Bill, you don't have to deal with all the stuff I have to deal with today. With, But I just listened. And then the first thing I thought, you know, was, well, I get calls from all kinds of people I don't know. And what, I'm supposed to call them back and find out they're just a cold call salesperson? Waste my time doing that? Or then I thought, well, I don't have time to call everybody back that calls me. I'm busy. 
right? But I listened and I listened to Bill for like two hours. And then I mapped on how I was doing on my journey of success compared to Bill. And I thought, hmm, I think he's crushed it to a much higher degree than I have. And I want to study this idea. I want to try this on. And so I started practicing it. And the first thing I did, Robbie, is I called people back that called me and left messages that I didn't know. Which I was thinking, you know, this couldn't be a bigger waste of time in the world, right? Yeah. Because these people are trying to sell me something, I'm sure. And I got to tell you, I had one of the biggest breakthroughs ever because some of those phone calls, of course, were a waste. But maybe one out of five turned into something that was quite surprising. I learned something from that person. I got connected to somebody else from that person. I decided to look into something I thought I never would look into because I had that conversation with that person. I met some personal friends, relationships because of those phone calls. I found, wow, there. if I'd have done this my whole career, um, yeah. I, I'd have had 10 times or 100 times the impact. Well, I definitely want to underscore that so that people are listening and thinking about like returning messages could be the key to unlocking new opportunities. Even if it's just 20% of the time, it, it pans out. The rest of them are going to be short. It doesn't matter. Um, I do want to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. But when we come back, I'm going to ask you my favorite wrap-up question because we are unfortunately running out of time. So here's a message from our sponsor. All right, my favorite wrap-up question. So Richard, a year from now, I run into you and I remember, you remember that we had this conversation a year ago. I'm asking you, what have you been up to? What are we going to be celebrating on your behalf? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Uh, the first thing that comes to, to mind, Robbie, is a quantum leap in my relationship with my wife, Kimmy. Um, and we have a great relationship. We've been married nine years. Um, we just got out of a three-day couples retreat, uh, which we do those kind of things to invest in our relationship. But, you know, I know I will continue to have impact and growth and success in business, and I'll meet people, and I will have gone places and done things that we could talk about. And, you know, I will have some breakthroughs in business that I'm working on. but. You know, that's all kind of blah, blah, blah. Because when it's all said and done, right? When we're laying there, if we do have notice, I'm not sure I want notice, but if you do have notice and you're laying there and you know, well, you got about five minutes before you're done, um, we're not going to think about how much money we made or the business successes we had. We're going to think about the people we love and the people that loved us. And we're going to think about the extraordinary memories that we created with people we care about. Life's made up of memories. It's not made up of years. You know, we all strive yeah. to, oh, I want to live to be 90 years old. And there's a lot of people that live to be 90 years old that have got 90 memories. Mm. 
And there's people that live to be 40 years old that have 40,000 memories. Yeah. So who outlived who? So Richard, how can people find you and follow your work? Easiest way is richardbrook.com, B-R-O-O-K-E, and sign up for my blog Mm. and podcast. And you can also find me uh, on Facebook and uh, LinkedIn and Instagram, Richard Bliss, B-L-I-S-S. It's my real middle name, Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E. I'm easy to find. We will put all the links in the show notes at onthishmooze.com. Richard, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you, Robbie. Great. You're a great listener, great intuition, great interviewer. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Richard. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 366. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.